I'm sure some of the, the brothers from even, even uh, South America and Central America will agree with me. The numbers getting saved are dramatic. I was in Nigeria. The numbers that are claiming the name of Jesus are dramatic in Nigeria. There are meetings there where one million people go regularly once a month. They have, they have these, um, they've got no walls on them, they're just roofs, and they go for acres and acres and acres of, of just, just to house all the people to come to that meeting once a month. One million people. And it's all based on miracles. There's lots of miracles, lots of healings, lots of power being demonstrated. All over town in Lagos, Nigeria, big billboards. Power, success, anointing. Where's the cross of Jesus? Where's the deep repentance for sin? You see, the thing about Nigeria is it now has millions and millions of Christians. Many of the government ministers will claim the name of Jesus. And the corruption is as bad or worse right through the whole society as it's ever been. Are those people really hearing the gospel and becoming transformed? Is this the gospel of Jesus which only transforms us for Sunday mornings? And does it transform our whole lives? Look, we need to... Uh, we need to get a few shocks put into us, so let's just start, alright? Let me make this statement right from the beginning. I'm glad, there's, I'm glad there's pastors here, I'm glad there's trained ministers here, because we can get into this a little bit. Is ask Jesus into your heart. Is give your heart to the Lord found in the Bible. No, it's not there. Now, now think about this for a minute. I've been raised in, different, in, in church backgrounds most of my life. When I was brought up, we were, my, my father was a Bible college trained. He was a, part, he was a, he was a preacher before I was born and he went school teaching, became a school teacher. He took us to church right from the start. He was spirit-filled, so we always went to Baptist. We went to Assembly of God. We went to different charismatic churches. We went to what they call in New Zealand open brethren churches. We, we, we tried it, uh, quite a few, belonged to different ones all over the years. And, and there was this common thing through all of them. When I was, when I was a bit older and started going to college, uh, I became involved with uh, friends from Campus Crusade for Christ, or the Navigators, these organizations that are in the, in the colleges trying to spread Christianity. We were always told all the time, this, here's how you get someone saved. You, you take them over to you take them over to the side and you explain that you know um, the four spiritual laws or whatever it is and you lead them in the sinner's prayer. You lead them in this little prayer. Well, the problem with that is when I got old enough to actually study up on that for myself, I found that not only did it not exist in scripture, there's nothing like it. There's no example of anybody becoming a Christian that way. There's no give your heart to the Lord. In fact, that phrase doesn't exist in Scripture. But even the concept of it doesn't exist. And people are not becoming Christians that way in the Bible. Now, we've covered the whole world with this. We've gone into every nation of the world to 
See, I tried asking Jesus into my heart. I tried praying that prayer about a hundred times. Meanwhile, I was so suicidally depressed from the age of about 14 to 17, I wanted to kill myself every day. I wanted to kill myself. That prayer did nothing for me. It wasn't a total surrender of my life. It wasn't deep repentance. It wasn't the transforming power of God. It wasn't the Holy Spirit descending on me. It was nothing. I tried it and tried it and tried it and tried it. Is it in the Bible? It doesn't exist in Scripture. Nothing like it is there. Ask Jesus into your heart. Give your heart to the Lord. Pray the sinner's prayer, as we call it. You would think... Now let me get this right. We have gone into the whole world basing our entire, the beginning of Christianity for everybody. You go Baptist churches, Assembly of God, they all tell you the same thing. Here's how you become a Christian, they say. I go look in the Bible. Now all you pastors, I want you to do this while I'm talking today. I want you to scan in your mind right through the New Testament and back again to test whether what I'm saying is true. Seriously, do it. You know your Bibles well enough to do it, okay? I give you full permission to do that. You scan through the New Testament right now and think for yourself if you can find one person where Peter goes like this. He's Peter's preaching and he goes, Oh, here, come down the front. We've just got we've got these uh, we've got the backup materials for you. We just want you to come down the front. Here, put your put your hand up, and then come down the front down here, and we'll just lead you in this little prayer to ask Jesus into your life. Remember, remember anything like that happening in the New Testament? I want to say to you, it never happens, never. So what are we doing? Jesus said, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, commanding them to do whatever I've taught you. Are we going into all the world and making disciples of Jesus, or are we going into all the world making churchy little people that know how to go to church and be good, nice people and give money in the offering and sit in a building every Sunday morning? What are we doing? What are we doing? What is this thing we've invented? What is this place? The serious and you know the serious problem we've got is if this thing's wrong, what else is wrong? Seriously. If we can't even get if someone comes to me and says, Sir, you know, in the Bible, just tell me, what, what should I do to become a Christian? If our answer is very different from the Apostle's answer, we've had it. This is the basic question we should be able to answer to the world. We should be able to come to us and say, I, I want to become a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. What do I do? We should be able to go, bam, 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 bam. That's, that's the very question we should be able to answer. We answer it right every time. Come with me first to uh, Acts chapter 2. Why is Acts a good place? Tell you why Acts is a good place to look at this. There's thousands of people getting saved. Thousands. How many get saved in one day? 
it's a fantastic place to look because there are multitudes of examples of people becoming Christians. So we start with Pentecost because this is the first place that we see thousands becoming Christians. It's the very beginning of the church. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now Peter is preaching. This is the very first sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It's the very first. Listen to this carefully. Now when they heard this, that's Peter preaching, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Some translations say cut to the heart. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Is a gospel a gospel if it doesn't produce in people godly sorrow? Let me ask that question. Because, because the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. So what if I'm preaching a gospel that nobody gets cut to the heart and nobody gets godly sorrow, no, nobody's sorry for their sins and nobody's really uh, fearing God sins are so great. What, what if people are just kind of jauntily walking down the front, you know, going, oh well, I'll, I'll try Jesus out. Have we preached the gospel to them? No, we haven't preached the gospel to them. The first word in the gospel is repent. They're only going to repent if they're filled with sorrow for their sins. So my job as a preacher, I've got to see them filled with that sorrow. See them cut to the heart. What is revival preaching? Revival preaching, you go back and study Charles Finney, John Wesley, George Whitfield. What do they have in common? They're preaching pierced people to the heart. People would just cry and weep at their sins. Some people just fall on their face before God. Weeping and crying. That's revival. Charles Finney, John Wesley, their ministries were full of this. That's real Testament preaching. That's real New Testament preaching. So here we go. We've, we've only just gotten a little bit into this. We're already seeing something here that's different to what we preach. Because we don't see people cut to the heart. We don't see people sorry for their sins. They're just trying Jesus out half the time. Do you know what? If you're just trying Jesus out, it's never going to work. Never. You'll try Jesus out, a little bit of persecution, a few tribulations will come along, which are promised in Scripture, and you'll fall away as quick as blink. Bible never says we're going to come into this to try Jesus out. Jesus says, if you do not take up your cross, you are not worthy of me. That's real preaching. Let's carry on here. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? There's the question. Then Peter said unto them, repent. Notice that. Repent is the first word that comes out of his mouth. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive. The gift of the Holy Spirit. 
here and just lift out that part where you get them to put their hand up, where you get them to repeat the little prayer. You know, he didn't say, he didn't say, oh, just come down here, say this prayer, and then you'll be saved. Did he? Now, the apostle just said something. We say something completely different. Who's wrong? I'm going to show you well and truly how wrong we are. Who's wrong? Who's wrong? Are we wrong or is Peter the Apostle wrong? He's saying repent. He's saying get baptized in water. Do you know they got baptized straight away? Why do they get baptized straight away? Why is baptism in water important in the New Testament? We, we, we think almost nothing of it. In the New Testament, it's vitally important. In the middle of the night, the jailer, remember the jailer, Paul has just been busted out of prison by the angel. What happens? The jailer says he and his whole household were baptized in the middle of the night. Why is it so important in the New Testament? It hardly means anything to us. I'll tell you why. It's because we just think it's water. That's why. We're so stupid that we can look at the whole New Testament... Here's what the Bible says about baptism. Pastors, you be scanning the scriptures while I'm, th- while I'm saying this stuff, okay? Romans chapter 6, an entire chapter on baptism. What does it say? It says, we were buried with him, therefore, in baptism, into death. Buried with Christ in baptism, into death. What happens from God's point of view when someone gets baptized is this. Their old life is buried. The old man is dead. And they can now live in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, through and through. We want to cut Romans 6 out of our Bible and throw it away. Then we can ignore baptism. What does it say in Colossians 2.12 about baptism? It says it's a circumcision of the heart. Why? Because it's a cutting off of the old life. I'm talking about baptism from God's point of view. Why in Russia did the authorities in the old days used to put the barbed wire all around the baptismal tank? Why? Because they don't want. The devil doesn't want people getting baptized. Why, all the way through the book of Acts, are people getting baptized immediately, immediately, all the time? No delay. Why? Because it's crucially important to God. But like I say, we've lost it all. We just think it's water. We've lost the gospel. We've lost what the apostles preached. Number one, we don't get people to repent. Number two, we don't baptize them straight away. We think very little of it. We don't send our guys out baptizing. One of the things I do, one of the things I do in a lot of conferences, I release all the young people to go out baptizing. I say, you go forth and you baptize. And next thing you know, they're picking up homeless guys off the street. They're taking them down to the sea. They're baptizing them in the ocean. Next thing you know, there's people getting baptized in water fountains in the middle of the town square. Next thing, they're baptizing their friends. They're saying, listen, did you know baptism is the death and burial of your old life? 
suddenly everybody goes, wow, in that case, I want to get baptized. If baptism is just water, it's meaningless, isn't it? If we're just going for a ceremony and everybody dresses up in nice white robes and we invite Auntie Mildred and, and so on, you know, uh, it's just... It's just a big churchy thing, isn't it? It's just garbage. It's religious nonsense is what it is. But if it's the death and burial of my old life, man, I'm there. Now that's what Romans 6 says it is. That's what Romans 6, he he says, listen you guys, you died to sin, how can you live any longer therein? We need to be able to say this. Now, now, can I live in real Christianity without getting baptized in water? Well, not according to Romans 6. You can't. Because the whole thing is predicated on the fact that you have already been baptized in water. When I was in the Salvation Army, we were involved in the Salvation Army for a few years in New Zealand. Kind of spirit-filled Salvation Army church. Most of the officers and everybody had been there. It took me a while to realize most of them had never been baptized in water. Why? Because Salvation Army doesn't do that. If you go right around the world and talk to a lot of in the charismatic movement who come out of the Methodist, the Presbyterian, come out of the Anglican, but they are all spirit-filled. They will speak in tongues. They've all got the gifts of the Holy Spirit and stuff going on. But you go talk to them about baptism, you find half of those people have never been baptized in water. They were sprinkled when they were baby. That's it. Half of those people never been baptized in water. Are they obedient to the Scriptures? Should we be preaching this? Yes. Listen, you imagine a prisoner in jail. This is the best example I can give. If you could go up to a lot of prisoners in jail and say, what would you give to have your old life cut off and buried forever? What would you give? Most of those guys, they say, I'd give, I'd give you everything I have for that. Why are they giving everything for that? Because their life was a hellhole. Their life was such garbage. It's got them into prison, they'd leave it all behind in a heartbeat. We don't even offer this. We don't even tell them the, the rich treasures of God just in that one act of getting baptized. Listen, the apostles are baptizing everybody straight away. We're about to see more evidence of it. So what's Peter saying here? He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know what he's talking about there because those guys had just received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It said at the beginning of this chapter, the Holy Spirit fell on them all, the fire came down upon them, and they all started speaking in other tongues, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Do you know my real Christian life? My real Christian life began the moment I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I was telling you earlier that I was so depressed, I wanted to kill myself every day. I would walk home from school wanting, longing to end my life. One of the reasons I didn't kill myself, my dad never knew this. My father had told me, he said, I believe that people who commit suicide go to hell. He was just making an off-the-cuff comment. 
He said, he, he said that to me one, one, one time. Now he wasn't talking about me. He, he didn't know what I was, where I was at. But I want to tell you that played on my mind. I thought I, I, I knew enough to fear God enough that I didn't want to. I didn't want to risk that. And so I was living on the edge of suicide every day without actually committing suicide. I was just longing to end my life every day for years. I'd go home, I'd get so despairing, I'd try asking Jesus into my heart again, I'd try praying the prayer that I'd heard, heard about in Sunday school, heard about in church all these years, no, nothing changed. Then I started noticing, I was in a Baptist youth group, started noticing some of my friends getting a real presence of God about them. Really, there seemed to be like the presence of God was just hanging over them. And I started talking to them. I started getting hungry for God. I was 17 years old. Started hungering after God. And I decided to totally surrender my whole life to God. Total surrender. And I, I decided, because I talked to them about it, they told me, oh, we've been going around to this guy's place and he's, he lays hands on us and prays for us and we all got filled with the Holy Spirit. And we all spoke in tongues, got filled with the power and the glory and the love of God. And they were telling me about this. And so I went round there to this guy's house eventually. I surrendered my whole life to God and I said, I'm going to go and get filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go ask this guy to pray for me and lay hands on me. I was filled with the glory of God and I went from being someone instantly. I went from someone who could not live the Christian life, didn't have the power to be a bold and, you know, just a, a Christian. Didn't have the power to be a Christian. I was always just stumbling along in the dark, no matter how much I tried. Suddenly I was filled with the power of God. What's Peter talking about here? He's saying, listen, we don't muck around for three years getting people having these experiences. It's got to be day one. It's got to be day one. My wife, when she got baptized in water, she came out of the water speaking in tongues. That's what should happen just about everywhere we go. That's what should happen. Why doesn't it happen? Because we're so lukewarm. Because our gospel is lukewarm. Because we don't preach what the apostles preach. We preach what we like. We're more influenced, especially in this nation and all around the world, by humanism. What does humanism preach? It preaches, well, you can, you can see what humanism preaches by looking at all our advertisements on television. I, I liken humanism to a Colgate commercial, you know, for toothpaste. What, what is the Colgate commercial trying to, how, how do they advertise that? They want to make you happy. They say Colgate will make you happy. It'll make you successful with, uh, with members of the, uh, of the other sex and you'll be, you know, you'll be popular, you know. And so they, they show various scenes. What, what, what's the central thing? It, Colgate's going to make you happier. It's going to fulfill your life. Every advertisement's about this. The new car that they want you to buy, it's going to make you feel special. It's a special car. It's going to make you feel like happier and more fulfilled and you're going to be 
more confident and you're going to be a better person. This is humanism. Advertising is utterly humanistic. What is humanism? It is the, the theory that man is the center of all things. So what does God exist? Well, God exists to make me happy. God exists to fulfill my needs. Why do I come to church? Oh, I come to church because, because the worship team makes me feel better in this one than the one down the road. Well, what do I feel like saying that? I say, you're a sick, shallow, probably going to hell, non-Christian, if that's your motives for coming to church. It's a gospel of selfishness. What do we get up and hear every time we go preach the gospel these days? It's about what I can get out of it. Come to Jesus. He'll give you a better life. Is there any difference between that and the Colgate Commission? No, no difference at all. We're advertising Jesus using humanism. Uh, Jesus is going to make you happy. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Do the apostles go around preaching that? No. Can, you, can we find an apostle preaching, hey, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Just come to Jesus. He'll make you feel so much better. He's going to get rid of your problems. You'll be a more confident person. You'll be richer, happier, and more successful. What, what did we just preach? We just preached a total gospel of humanism. Humanism, humanism, and nothing less. That's all we just preached. We didn't preach any scripture then at all. What's the, what's the scripture saying? Jesus says, if you, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, you're not going to be my disciple. Jesus is saying, and why, why do you take up the cross? I tell you why you take it up, one reason only, because you're about to be hammered to it. Is that a gospel of happiness? Sound like humanism to you? I want to say to you, humanism and the gospel of Jesus are the opposite to one another. One of them is tickling people's ears and saying, God, basically saying, God exists, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're not going to come right out and say it, but, you know, God exists for your happiness. Our church exists to fulfill your needs. No. God exists and the gospel exists for your holiness. And if you don't get holy, you're going to hell. Now, happiness on one side. I just want to be happy. I just want to be filled with love, joy, and peace. I want all my problems to go away. Are those valid reasons to come to Jesus? No, I believe not. Our pews are full. This is why we have a local church. Our pews are full of people who came to Jesus for the wrong motives and what they could get out of it. Jesus is going to solve my problems. I'm going to have a wonderful plan for my life. My life is going to be more fulfilled. Love, joy, peace, etc., etc., etc. Listen. Jesus came to take away your sins. If you don't repent of your sins and take up your cross and go through persecution for the name of Christ, you're not worthy of Him. You're not worthy of Him and you will never make it into His kingdom. Those messages are 
figured out that all he has to do, and a lot of them are figuring this out, Joel Osteen is just the best of them. All he's got to do, he's a very good motivational speaker. You ever heard of motivational speakers? You know, Zig Ziglar is another one. Um, Tony Robbins is probably the best of them. Tony Robbins, the guy that gets on the infomercials on television. Oh, you know, meeting the president or whatever. You know, he's just so good at this stuff. What are they doing? They're basically preaching success. How to be successful. And cloaking it with a few scriptures. It's humanism through and through. But why are American Christians particularly prone to this? Is because our culture worships success. And so if you can make a gospel, even if it's utterly false, if you can make a gospel that, uh, that is so closely aligned with the culture, so closely aligned with the culture, that the Christians can't even see you. They're blinded to that. Why is there a saying that goes like this? A, fa- a fabulous saying that says, the last one to see the water is the fish. The last one to see the water is the fish. Why is that saying so powerful as this? The fish has been brought up in that water all its life. When it looks around, it doesn't see water. Why? Because water is what it lives in. It's so used to the water. It's so thoroughly immersed in that water from its birth. Listen, in America, what are we immersed in? We're immersed in a culture that worships success, getting the right career, earning good money, getting things, getting a nice car, getting a better house, marrying the right, you know, follow your dreams. What is every Hollywood movie basically preaching? Follow your dreams and you'll get what you what's what you deserve. What has the church started to preach? We think we can only be successful if we take up humanism and start preaching it ourselves. This is why our churches are full of sinners, unredeemed sinners, and why the gospel is no longer preached in America. It doesn't suit our culture. These guys are so successful because they've worked out that if you take Tony Robbins' basic success principles, if you take how to win friends and influence people, if you take Think and Grow Rich, you know, the classic texts on success and gaining money and gaining success, you take those basic principles and just stick some scriptures, just cover them with a few scriptures and just preach them to Americans, the Americans think it's God's truth. They think it's the gospel. It's a gospel of wealth and success and character building. You know, a lot of good, nice little principles in there. It's a gospel of humanism. It's killing us. It's not the gospel of Jesus at all. It's wiping us out. It's the very reason why revival is in doubt in this nation is because the true prophets of God have got to stand up and cut across that. And it's been so deeply ingrained now in all of our churches that any prophet is literally almost risking their life and reputation to stand up against that thing and say, but didn't Jesus say we have to take up the cross? 
Didn't Paul say he glories in his sufferings? Isn't the gospel the opposite of success and wealth and getting ahead? Isn't it really following Jesus into the depths of wherever he takes us and it may not be good? But he'll always be with us anyway. Didn't he say, they have hated me, they will also hate you. Do they hate us? No, they don't hate us. They merely dislike us or disdain us. If they hated us, we will be in danger of death. But we're too lukewarm for that. They disdain us because we have no power to back up our words. Acts 2.37. So here we go. I'll just repeat it again. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is there anywhere in the book of Acts or in the New Testament where we can find people that are thought of as acceptable New Testament Christians who haven't had these three things? The answer is no. There is no time in the whole New Testament where that was acceptable. In fact, if they found anybody that called themselves a believer and they hadn't had those things, they would instantly start questioning them. Instantly. I'll show you what I mean. Let's go to Acts chapter 19. We're jumping over a few, but let's go there. This illustrates what I'm saying. You notice what Paul asks them here. Very interesting. This is the first time Paul goes to Ephesus. Verse 1. Acts 19, verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And listen to this. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Now, that's an interesting question. He must have found these guys, and he he must have gone, There's something not right about these people. First question he asked them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, we've not even so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. You know, John the Baptist. So that meant baptized for repentance only. Listen to what Paul says, verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him which would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Do you notice that that pattern there is exactly the same as the day of Pentecost? Paul was preaching to the Ephesians for the first time. Peter was preaching to the Jerusalem people for the first time. They're saying the same thing. These people had already repented. 
So he goes straight on to baptizing them in water, lays hands upon them, and they get filled with the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, and they prophesy. Okay? Same pattern. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Now, should we leave people without these things? The answer is clearly no. Paul did it. I don't know if any of you are... Um, actually, before we, before we do this, let's, no, just turn to Hebrews 6 with me. We need to look at what the foundations of the faith are. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Why are they preaching these things as being the basics, as being the foundation, as being straight away? You don't even hang around, you do them straight away. Why are they doing that? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. This is why they're doing it. It's because this is the foundation, this is the principles, this is the beginning, the basics. Okay, Hebrews 6 verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. There's six things there, they're all the basics. This is the basics. He says, Let's go on from the basics, shall we? Let's go on from the foundations, shall we? And he lays out the six things. Repentance, faith, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. That's why these guys emphasize these things as being the very basic, the very beginning. It's unacceptable to have anything less than that. Go, go back to Acts chapter 8, please. Just got a, two more examples to look at in the in the book of Acts in the book of Acts because otherwise we'll spend all our time on this kind of point. You will notice that in those foundations there is no amongst the six. Ask Jesus into your heart. Give your heart to the Lord. Pray a sinner's prayer. Why is it lacking from those six foundations? Because it doesn't exist. Because we made it up. When did we make up the ask Jesus into your heart thing? I'll tell you, it's when we started doing mass crusade evangelism. And we needed something quick and easy. And we wanted to reduce the New Testament down to one little formula prayer that we could give people when they came forward. So we could train our counselors and say, okay, here's what you do. Just lead them in a little prayer. In fact, get them to follow you word for word and lead them in this little prayer. Well, does that little prayer work? I've tried it on people when I was young. Is it, did, it, did it get that person saved? Did that person suddenly get their life transformed by God? Did they come out of the darkness and into light? Did they, with a totally new creation found in Jesus? No. They pray, they followed me in a, in a couple of sentences. That's what they did. At the very most, what we're getting people is to take one little tiny step towards Jesus. That's it. At best. 
Are they becoming New Testament Christians? No. We've just seen people become New Testament Christians. They don't do any of that. They do different stuff. My view is this. Let's do what they did. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. This is the next people group to be reached by the apostles, by the New Testament church. Philip is an evangelist. Philip the evangelist goes to Samaria. Acts 8 verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believes. This is Simon the magician, or Simon the sorcerer, he's called. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now listen to this, verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What are we seeing there? We're seeing Philip preaching in Samaria. The people believe the gospel. They're immediately baptized in water. The apostles come all the way down from Jerusalem to pray for them to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Bam, bam, bam. Is there any other acceptable kind of New Testament Christian? No. When I go into all the world telling everyone to ask Jesus into their heart and give their heart to the Lord, am I preaching the gospel? If I go into all the world saying, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life, come and try him out. Am I preaching the gospel? Why is the entire church lukewarm? Why can we go to many nations of the earth and there's spirit-filled people? I mean people that legitimately can, they've just got enough of the Holy Spirit, just a little touch of the Holy Spirit to enable them to speak in tongues. Just enough of that. These are spirit-filled people. They go to church every week. But their life is full of compromise. Their life has sin. Some of the nations that are full of these people are some of the most corrupt nations in the whole world. How how is this possible? Because we're not preaching holiness. Because we're not preaching a piercing word. Because people aren't deeply repenting. Because they're not doing these things. We're not making disciples. We're not making disciples. Let alone teaching them to, to do all what that Jesus commanded. One last example. We're skipping over a few, but there. Think of this. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch. He's traveling along in his chariot. Philip's preaching the gospel to him. The gospel, the real thing. What does that Ethiopian eunuch say to Philip? He says, here is water. What prevents me getting baptized right now? This is Acts chapter 8. If you want to look it up later. Acts chapter 8. Here's water. What's preventing me getting baptized? What has Philip just been preaching to him about? 
He's obviously talked to him about baptism. Has to have, because the guy asks him straight up. And, and Philip, it's, obviously they stop the chariot, the guy gets baptized in the water straight away. And it says, Philip is caught up in the Holy Spirit to another place. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. Listen, they got people saved different to we do. They got people saved different, totally different. When I was in uh, North Carolina um, a few weeks ago, a month ago I guess, we had a guy, he listened to, listened to me preach about this online, on the internet, he listened to one of my sermons on this subject. And he asked me on the first night, he said, uh, Andrew, could, can you guys baptize me sometime during this weekend? Because I really feel, after listening to that talk, you know, I really feel I need to get baptized. And I said, well, what about, what about right now? What about tonight? He goes, yeah, okay. I said, so where's some water? He says, well, there's some fountains on the main road, you know. I said, great, let's do that. Because fountain baptisms are the best baptisms. They're, fun. They're a lot more fun than usual baptisms. Why? Because there's cars going by, there's people getting convicted as they're driving past. You know, so we went, and this, this, this was a roundabout, found, there was a roundabout, there wasn't that much traffic. Um, in the middle of the night, probably 11 or 12 o'clock at night, we go up to this fountain, and we baptize this guy right in the fountain. Praise God, he was delighted, he was just glowing. And, he, and then people started telling their friends. So a couple of days later, we were, we were on a jaunt around the town, um, just being shown in the town, and two other, or three other, I can't remember, two or three, others wanted to get baptized in the same fountain. So we stopped at the fountain, everybody jumped off, we baptized people, got back in the thing, and off we went. What happens when you start doing things the Bible way? You start living in the book of Acts. Why do we not see the book of Acts happen? book of Acts is mostly simple things. Why do we not see it happening? Because we don't do any of those things. When I start sending people out, and, that, and I, I tell them, listen, to baptize someone, you don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be anybody. It says a certain disciple named Ananias baptized Paul. A certain disciple. That's all we know about the guy. So, here's the guy baptizing, you know, Saul, who later become Paul the Apostle. And he's just a, he's just a, a disciple. He's, we don't know who he is. So he, go, he baptizes him. And I say, listen, if you're a spirit-filled Christian, you not only have the right to baptize, you have the duty to go out baptize. Go and do it. Go and find people who haven't been baptized and go start baptizing it. When you start doing Book of Acts things, the Book of Acts starts happening. Right. Last example, I'll just tell you about it. Okay, you can turn there with me, but I'll just talk about it. Acts chapter 10. Again, they're going to a new people group here. This is the first, this is the godly Gentiles, the first group of godly Gentiles that became Christians. Actually, we will, we will read it out. Um, Acts chapter 10, verse 44. 
So Peter is preaching again, okay? Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word. So he's in the middle of preaching. The Holy Spirit falls on everybody. And listen to this, verse 45. They of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, for they heard them speak in tongues and magnify God. Then said Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So what's happening here? He's preaching. The Holy Spirit literally falls. Everybody starts speaking in tongues. He commands them to be baptized in water straight away. Now we've just gone right through the book of Acts. We haven't even looked at some examples. We just went right through the book of Acts. Number one, there's no give your heart to the Lord. Nothing. It's not even there. Number two, all these thousands of people that we just looked at went through the same pattern. They repented. They got baptized in water. Sometimes the order was a bit different. The order of what happened. But it's always the same thing. They get filled with the Holy Spirit on day one. That's a New Testament Christian. Now we need to move on from there. Very briefly, as briefly as I can. I want to talk about revival gospel. The kind of gospel that John Wesley, you know, I, I run a website called revivalschool.com and for 20 years I've been studying revivals. What gets preached in revivals? Now do you know that the main thing, the main thing that is preached is repentance. The main thing that is preached is repentance. But it's a special kind of message. Do you realize that there's no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian, a true Christian, who has sin that they can look at on their heart or their conscience? No such thing. We quoted earlier that scripture. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. What does that mean? It means unless you're holy, you've had it. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, if you're noting it down, there's a scripture that says, Many will say to me in that day, it's talking about judgment day, it says, Many will say to me in that day, Have we not prophesied in your name and done many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus is going to say to these people, Get away from me. I never knew you. And they're going to be saying, But Lord, but Lord. And they're going to be saying things like, Yeah, but we cast out demons. But we 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 spoke in tongues. We raised our hands in church. We tithed. They're going to be saying all these things to Jesus. But listen, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So the other part of our gospel, the other part, 
Everything I just talked about there, to those guys, is so basic. In the New Testament, it's so basic, they don't even think about it. Everybody on the first day repented and got baptized and got filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's basic. I want to say to you, if that's not happening in your ministry, don't expect to get up in front of Jesus on Judgment Day as a preacher and have him say, well done. Can you imagine the numbers of preachers who are going to come in front of Jesus? They're going to say, Jesus, I served you for 40 years. I preach faithfully to my congregation every week. Jesus straight comes back and says, yeah, but none of them are saved. And they say, yeah, but, but, see, it says teachers, it says, be not many teachers, for teachers shall receive a stricter judgment. Why do we receive a stricter judgment? Because in our mouths are life and death. I could, pre- I could stand here preaching to you something that is simply dead. I could preach to you something that just tickles your ears and gets you all rah, rah, rah. You know, we're so good at that. I can whip up a crowd. I can, if I want to, I can just collect jokes and stories together and make a whole sermon out of it and have you guys just laughing and have you guys just feeling good and even make you weep a little bit as I tell some story or whatever. Listen, away with all of that. If I don't preach truth to you today, in fact, the most important truth that I know how to bring, I'm dead. I'm going to get in front of Jesus and I'm in fear of what he'll do to me because I receive a stricter judgment. Everyone who's a preacher or a leader of any kind in here, listen, we want to get up there and we want to find a whole lot of jewels and gold that we built up that we can cast at Jesus' feet and say, and, he, and he, we want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. There are going to be guys that, that think they've served Jesus for 40 years arriving there with nothing. In fact, Jesus is going to be saying to them, the things you taught my children were false and never saved them. And I can not save you. No joke. Because that's what Matthew chapter 7 is saying. It's saying there's going to be guys arriving in heaven saying, but Lord, but Lord. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why does he not know them? They're doing miracles. They're casting out demons. Why does he not know them? Why? Because their lives were not filled with holiness. Their consciences were not clean. They dared to get up in front of Jesus. Here's how you can tell people that really know Jesus and really don't. The people that don't know Jesus think they can get up in front of him on that day with spots on their white robe and they'll be all right. That's people who don't know Jesus. The people who really know him know that he cannot live with that. That he gives us a white robe and expects us to arrive there with white robes, not spotted robes. And if we arrive there with that condition, we can expect to be completely cast away 
Remember the parable of the guy who arrives at the wedding feast and he doesn't have the white robe on. What does Jesus say to him? Get out of here. You don't belong here. How, how can you come in here without the correct wedding garment? Part of true Christianity, says James, is to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So Jesus is cleansing our conscience. It says in uh, Hebrews, it says we are sprinkled, washed with water, washed with a cleansing, purifying. Our conscience is washed clean. Now what happens if we're walking along and we need to we need to come to a, a close here, so I want to now this needs to be part of our gospel. This is so important that if you go back and read many of Wesley's sermons, they're basically about this. Wesley has sermons like Marks of the New Birth and he talks about People who think they're born again, but really they're not. How do we know they're not? Because they look at their conscience and it's unclean. They look inside themselves and there's unforgiveness there. There's lust there. There's backbite. There's gossip. There's, there's lying. How can we tell the conscience of man? Conscience of man is so critically important to God. Critically important to God that it's clean. That we keep it clean. In fact, I want to put it to you that true Christianity, and you know, Second uh, Peter backs me up on this, it's, it says that salvation is the answer of a good conscience towards God. Now I want to say, we have thousands and millions in our pews every Sunday whose conscience, if they were to look upon it, is defiled. They know full well there's stuff in there that they... But, you know, they think of God not as a holy God. They think of God as an overly merciful God. We heard about that this morning. Unsanctified mercy. In other words, we think God just forgives everything. We think we can just arrive up there and we've got sin on our conscience, sin on our hearts, and it's okay. Jesus will forgive me. The answer to that is no. Think of it this way. The, the one attribute of God that is repeated three times in Scripture to emphasize it so heavily is this. God's character is this. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What you're expecting God to do, holy God who cannot stand sin. This is how much God hates sin. He sent His Son down to die a horrific death to get rid of it. That's how much God hates sin. God hates sin and cannot live with it. How do we know He cannot live with it? He creates a place as far from Himself as He can, a great fire where it can be burned forever because He hates sin and can't stand to live with it. He will not put up with it. And what, what a lot of us you know, in, the, in the church today are expecting is we can arrive in front of that God Holy, holy, holy God. And we've got these spots all over our road. And we are expecting that He's going to live with us forever. So we're expecting holy God to have unholy us come in and live in His presence with Him forever. I'm sorry. I want to say to you, 
That's impossible. It goes against everything we know about God. What he does is this. He takes unholy people. He makes them holy so he can live with them forever. He will not live with the unholy thing. He'll cast it out. Where does that leave us in our gospel? It basically means this. It means if we are, if our gospel is not creating holy people, I'm not talking about holy on the outside, I'm not talking about washing the outside of the cup like the Pharisees did. I'm talking about holy in here. Totally cleansed by God. Totally purified by the blood of Jesus. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. What does that old song say? It says, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in Is your conscience clean before God? Now I want to say to you, these are the areas that constitute a revival gospel. When you go back and study Finney and Wesley and these guys, what are they preaching day after day after day? They're preaching, asking the question of people, are you really a Christian or do you just put on the mask and go to church? Is the heart of you in this condition that we're talking about in the New Testament? Or is it spotted? Is it spotted? And you just live with it like that. And you expect you can get up in front of God and He's just going to say, Oh, I forgive you anyway. Come on in. Live with me forever in your unholy state. No. Jesus died, it says in 1 John 3, not just to forgive us our sins, but to take away our sins. God will not live with unholiness for all eternity he won't do. Jesus died to make us holy so we can live with God forever. So I want to close on that because uh, you know just to very summarize I guess very quickly the things that we've covered today I guess are three main things. One is that we cannot preach a gospel of humanism. If we're not preaching, take up your cross, we're not preaching the gospel. We're preaching to them what they can get out of it, selfish motives, living a better life, living a more fun life, enjoyable life. Away with it. Okay, second thing. In the Bible... All the way through, when people were becoming Christians, they repented, they got baptized, they got filled with the Holy Spirit on day one. Anything less than that is not New Testament, it's not biblical, it doesn't stand the test, it's unscriptural, and quite frankly, it's contributed to the terrible lukewarmness in the church. Last thing is this, that we just looked at, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And if we want to see the church transformed, we will preach this word to them. If you behold sin in your heart, God will not hear you. If you have sin on your conscience today, don't expect God to save you.
He came to take it away so He could live with you. Those three things to me constitute a real New Testament gospel. Nothing less will do. If we want revival, that's the gospel we've got to get back to. Start preaching it, I believe we'll see massive revival. A lot of the spirit filled church needs revival in every, just about everybody coming in the doors. And this message is what we've got to preach to bring it about. Amen? Okay, just stand and pray with me.